0: Good morning, everyone. Is that super loud or do I have my hearing aids turned up? Is it okay? Good. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this service. We want to, as we approach your word now, ask for your rich blessing and anointing. Enable me, Lord, to speak with clarity. Enable us to hear the voice of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that we already know your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, we ask that as a result of the truths that we ponder this morning, that we would become a more holy people and a more bold people, proclaiming your gospel, Father, with great confidence in who we are because of your great love for us we praise you and bless you and glorify you lord and it's in jesus name we pray and commit this time to you amen so i want to begin with a what may be a very provocative question this morning And that question is, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, does God see you as royalty? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, does God see you as royalty? There's a song by Cody Carnes and Carrie Joby called All He Says I Am. And two lines of that song say the words, he reminded me. I am all, he says I am. I am all, he says I am. Here at TCF, we've done a great job of teaching you to have the mindset of a slave, a servant. Remembering Jesus' words that if we want to be great in the kingdom of God, we become what? A servant. And if we want to be first in his kingdom, we become a slave. A slave. If we want to be great, we become a servant. If we want to be first, he changes the word to the word for slave. But that is not all of who he says we are. Our identity in him is really much more diverse, and that makes sense since we're made in his image, and his image is infinitely huge. So, here are some other words that describe in the scriptures who we are. For example, you see the word disciple, saint, witness, child of God, and soldier. But there are also indications of royalty. It seems that we are Not only these things, but we're also created for royalty. We were created for a crown. Look at these words that are also descriptive of a dimension who God says we are. We're heirs of God, vessels of honor, a royal priesthood, the elect. In Ephesians uh, uh, 2, verse 6, it says, We are already seated with him in the heavenlies. One verse says, We shall judge angels. We will rule and reign with him. And again, we are heirs of God. This morning, we'll explore this aspect of our identity in God, specifically the high standing we've been given in God by virtue of being made in his image and redeemed by Jesus Christ. So, specifically, we're going to look at four things that God has established man with an extremely high standard uh, standing by making us in his own image. Secondly, man's high standing was lost by the entrance of sin into the world. Third, man's high standing was restored, or actually a better word would be Recreated through the redemption of Jesus Christ. And finally, man's high standing has been lifted into royalty. I'm going to be asking the question this morning Are God's thoughts about us much higher than our thoughts about ourselves? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Are God's thoughts about us much higher? than our thoughts about ourselves. My answer has become a resounding yes. His thoughts are indeed higher. His ways are higher, his plans are higher than any of us could ever ask or think. We were created for royalty, in fact, we are royalty already. We were created for a crown. And that crown, one day we know that we will take off our head in worship and adoration and throw it at the feet of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who is worthy of all glory and all praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So let's look at our standing before God, specifically the image of God. On the youth ski trip this year, our youth leaders, uh, John and Megan, led an amazing study on the image of God. And as we studied, we realized that when God created mankind, it can only be said that He created us with an incredibly high standing by virtue of that fact. So in Genesis 1, and 27, we read about that reality. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, He created them. Now, as we studied this as a group, we, we noticed that man was created on the sixth day. He was the last of the creative works of God after the sun and the moon, the stars, the light and darkness, the land and sea, the fish and animals, and man was given dominion over all of it. It was as if or it looks as if it was given for our enjoyment, and that we were the apex, the pinnacle of his handiwork. And we concluded that indeed we are. My uh, Bible has this note in, within its pages. Man and women, woman are the crowning achievements of God's creative work. As free moral beings who bear the image of God, they were assigned dominion over the natural world. They alone, among the living creatures of the world, are equipped with fellowship with their creator. And then we have Psalm 8, 3 through 9, which makes this point very, very strongly. Listen to this. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him? And the son of man that thou dost care for him. Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God and dost crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. We kept thinking about what, what does it mean to be created in the image of God, and we came up with at least five thoughts or realities that made sense to us. First, there's obviously a capacity to rule, to have dominion over the other aspects of God's creation. Second, that we have a will. Uh, We have the freedom to choose who we will become and who we will serve. You remember that Bob Dylan song, You're Gonna Serve Somebody? Somebody. Oh, it's a great song. If you don't know it, you might look it up. Third, there's the possibility of intimate fellowship with God. No other creature has that offered to them, but we read in the, in the Genesis account how God was walking in the cool of the morning in the garden looking for Adam and Eve, looking for that fellowship. A fourth thing, the ability to be holy And separated unto God. This was before sin had come into the world. And Adam and Eve had this unhindered uh, relationship with God. How many of you would like just kind of get that monkey of sin off your back? And uh, thank God that Jesus has come and set us free to do that. But there's still a mop-up operation going on, at least in my life. And then the fifth one is immortality. When he breathed into us his breath of life, we became a living, immortal spirit. Thank you, Lord. We talked over with the youth that as the pinnacle of God's creation, we must be of more value than the most majestic mountain range or the most beautiful sunset. Let that sink in for a minute. We were driving home from the slopes one of those nights, and there was just this incredible sunset behind this incredible mountain range. And I was just pondering this truth as I saw that, that am I really more important than all of that to you, Lord? and i concluded that if i'm going to have to believe if i if i'm going to believe what he says i'm going to have to conclude that i am because the bible says heaven and earth are going to pass away but we're not going to pass away are we because we have an immortal spirit and the only question is are we going to go up or are we going to go down that's the only question that rests concerning that. We have, let me state this clearly, we have no intrinsic value in ourselves like the humanists say. After all, we were made out of dirt. But because God made us in his image, we are of incredibly high value and standing to him. Amen? To God, all men and women, every boy and girl, every race, every nation are of incredible value because he made us in his image like no other part of his creation, and he made us for himself. But then sin entered the world. And... uh, our high standing before God was lost. Orthodox Christianity says that the image of God was not completely stamped out of us, but that our high standing before God was. For several centuries after Christ lived and died and rose again, people were like, what just happened? They were stunned. It took several hundred years and several Church councils to kind of decide or even begin to process the teachings of Christ, what they meant, what books to include in the Bible, and so on. And one of the debates in the early 400s was about sin. The questions they were asking were just how sinful are we? Is our sin like a nagging cold? or a bad infection. Maybe it's a terminal disease, or what? And after a lot of discussion, the truth became manifest from the Scriptures that sin is totally destructive, that we are utterly depraved, and that, in fact, we are already dead in our sins after all. After all, if we're just a little sick, we just need a little medicine. If we are seriously ill, we probably can get by with just a doctor. But if we are dead, we need a Savior, and we need a Lord with the power to raise us from the dead. Can I get an amen about that? I have a little side note here. Oh yes, the term utter depravity becomes or became the phrase to describe sin accurately. It means this, that sin has invaded and infected every part of our person. That we're in a state where we cannot not sin. The Latin for this, just to impress you, hopefully, is non potes non pecare. Therefore, that means if that's true, then we are slaves of sin, right? Like it talks about in Romans 5, we cannot not sin, and we need the grace of God to even be aware of this fact and awakened from sin. The Bible confirms this truth about sin. For example, in Jeremiah 17.9, it says, The heart is deceitful and what? Desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? And then in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 1, it says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, as Bill mentioned earlier, even as the rest. And then we have... The words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 15, verse 17 through 19, he said, Don't you understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. You know, this uh, phrase that we cannot not sin seems to fit our experience too, doesn't it? You know, we all stumble in many ways. I think I told you before about my son Nathaniel, when, uh, when he lit my front yard on fire, he... Uh, He and Caleb Reed wanted to sleep on the roof. They asked me if they could sleep on the roof. And you know how you get that feeling inside? Like, I should not say yes to this. But being weak, I said yes. And uh, as I was getting ready for bed, I heard the hose running. Uh, And I thought, that's curious. What are those guys up to? And uh, I, I put on my robe and I... Uh, I, they were coming in just as I was going to the front door, and they were, they were breathing hard, and they were soaking wet, and they were covered in soot. And they said, Dad, Nathaniel said, Dad, we're so, we're so sorry. We lit the front yard on fire. <laughs> and, and I was about to lay into them like a good dad should when I thought, when I was about their age, I lit a garage on fire. And when I was a little older, I lit myself on fire. <laughs> and so we just laughed, and, uh, and they told me with, through, through the great comic revelry what had happened, and uh, it became a good moment for us. Not for the yard, but, but for us. And then, of course, many of us have experienced a compulsive sin. Even as a believer fighting sin, sometimes we struggle with a sin that seems to be reigning, like Romans says, in our mortal bodies. I'm so, so grateful for the Apostle Paul's transparency in Romans 7, where he talks about his own battle with compulsive sin, I believe. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is there, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, he says, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Even though sin was reigning in him in some way, and he noticed this warfare going on in himself, it's interesting to me that he did not let his identity in Christ be overwhelmed by his battle against sin. He said, I am no longer the one doing it, but, but sin is. Which dwells within me. And then further on down. He says wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He was looking to Jesus to deliver him. He was looking to our Lord to deliver him from compulsive sin. This is very, very important. Please listen to me. If you have made Jesus, your Lord and Savior. If you are fighting the sin that lingers in your life, if you're walking in the light as he is in the light, your true identity is in Christ. The Bible says that your true life is hidden in Christ in God and that you are seated in the heavenlies already. But if we have not received him as Savior and Lord, or if we are willfully sinning against the Lord and thereby walking in darkness, we are deeply broken by sin. We are infected in every part. We are a slave to sinfulness, moving toward death, and in fact, dead already. Our high standing before God is obliterated and His image within us is on life support. And the wrath of God, scariest of all, rests upon us. We got to take sin very, very seriously, don't we? The Bible takes sin very, very seriously. But, At the right time, Jesus Christ came into the world to redeem us. And to those who believe in him, a new high standing before God was created. The gospel wants us to grasp God's infinite love for us. And perhaps there's no better passage than Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. I remember hearing... Brother Bill read these words but God but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him "...in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." That's good news. That's good news. The gospel, though, also wants us to understand Christ's infinite value the infinite value that God paid to redeem us. This may, not, this may be a part of the gospel that we don't think of as much. Think about as much. On the ski trip, John Faylor caught my attention when he said this, the value of something is determined by the price someone is willing to pay for it. The value of something is determined by the price someone is willing to pay for it. And so we see the infinite value in Christ and the infinite price God was willing to pay. Written about in 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19, and 2, 6, and 7. Let me read those to you. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile ways of life inherited from your forefathers, but with what? The precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And then over in verses 6 and 7 of the next chapter, For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Listen to this line, This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Two weeks ago when Dave Fox was with us, he he tried to capture this in the story of a young man in love and wanting to present an engagement ring to the girl of his dreams. Do you remember this? And he talked about this man not, probably not having much money, and so he scraped together all that he had, sold all that he had to buy this ring that represented all the value that he could pay and how he offers it to the girl. And if she accepts it, They go on to live a life of happiness and joy, we hope, uh, for the rest of their days. But if she rejects it, it's impossible for the relationship to go on. The, The relationship ends. This represents everything he has. And so the idea here is that God in Christ gave the most precious thing he had the most valuable thing he could offer was the blood and the life the death the resurrection of his one and only begotten son for us for us how how incredible Do any of you have trouble with the word redemption or to be redeemed? Um, I was talking it over with Laura. She, She understands the word perfectly. But for me, seminary trained and all that, it's still confusing to me. That's not a word we use a whole lot in our modern day vocabulary outside of the church. But redemption simply means to buy back or to set free by substitution. Through the death of Christ on the cross, we were redeemed, and a new high standing before God was created. We become new creations. His workmanship, or handiwork. Another place it calls us the redeemed of the Lord And in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we are the righteousness of God through Christ. That's pretty amazing. We become the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. I I think we're beginning to see that His thoughts about us are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. His plans are higher than our plans. But his plans for our standing before him go even higher than this, because there are indications that we are lifted by God into royalty, into the realm of royalty. Now, you may not feel like royalty, but listen to these descriptions that we must grapple with. First of all we oops we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ Romans 8:17 there we are told that there is a rich and glorious inheritance awaiting us Ephesians 1:19 that if we endure to the end we will reign with him 2 Timothy 2.12. We are, as I mentioned before, told that we are already seated in the heavenlies with Him. Ephesians 2.6. We're told that we will judge angels. 1 Corinthians 6.3. And that we are a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9. We could go on and talk about mansions and thrones and crowns. Uh, Other words that are descriptors of at least some of the saints, if not all. Suffice it to say that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the mind of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. God has destined us for royalty, as mind-blowing as that is, and in fact, to Him we seem to be royalty already. So I want to begin to wind this down a little bit and, and ask the question, how, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this dimension of I am all that he says I am? Well, first of all, in the last several decades, there's been a teaching Uh, Similar to this, that we are king's kids. How many of you have heard that teaching over the years? And um, often preachers have taken this truth and kind of puffed out their chest and strutted across their stages and roared like lions as they command principalities and powers and even Satan himself to come to heal. I understand that. I get militant sometimes. I want to shove the devil around sometimes. And yet, uh, we need to be careful because the Scriptures have a, a warning against arrogance and against taking more authority than is given to us. I'm thinking of Jude where it says, Yet in the same manner these men, referring to false prophets, also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and, listen to this line, revile angelic majesties. For Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, listen to this line, did not dare to pronounce against Satan a railing judgment. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. The warning here is about arrogance and asserting more authority than we have as a believer. In so doing, we can actually be guilty of rejecting God's authority and being out of divine order as we battle the adversary. So humility, rather than a sense of, of arrogance, secondly, I like the thought of gratitude rather than guilt. You know when we 're given something that is really, really special, uh, sometimes we 're overwhelmed with guilt aren 't we? I remember early in our marriage, uh, my granddad uh, I think it was when he died, we received uh, $50,000. At that time, we were poor as as church mice, as the saying goes. We were eating a lot of pancakes and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I remember being in prayer in this prayer closet in a house in northern Minnesota and just honestly, you guys, weeping before the Lord because I felt so guilty and burdened that I had this money. Uh, My friends didn't have this money. Nobody had this money. I have this money. And rather than it being a blessing, it just felt like a curse, like I I just don't deserve this and so on. But one day it broke, and I was able to embrace the goodness of God and the grace of God. No, I didn't deserve the money. And nevertheless, God had chosen through my granddad to give it to me. So what am I going to do? I have to choose between gratitude and being racked with guilt. I think I'll take gratitude. Uh, somehow, I opened myself up to that. Gratitude is so powerful. One, at, one author calls it, the best antidote even to lust. Listen to this. Gratitude quenches the fire of lust. A thankful spirit, we can apply this to anything, but he's he's talking about lust. A thankful spirit destroys the driving passion for sex because it creates contentment within the man's heart. It soothes the beast smothers the flames, and medicates the itch. The message behind lust is, I want, I want, I want. The feeling lodged within the grateful heart is, look at all that I have. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for me and given me. I don't need anything else. A grateful heart is a full heart. When a person is content with life, he will not be driven by the lust for what he should not have. This is a little bit off track, but so be it. I thought you'd want to know. A third uh, response to this incredible truth we're looking at today is that we should be pursuing holiness rather than license. You know, if we're completely secure in Christ, if we're royalty to Him, um, a mistake we could make is to say, well, I can do whatever I want. I can uh, be sinful if I want. But the Apostle Paul addresses this, doesn't he, when he says, Shall we sin that grace may abound? May it never, never be. And then in James, we read, uh, excuse me, First John chapter 1, we read, If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. No, we were bought with the precious blood of Christ and were told to conduct ourselves with fear during the time of our stay upon earth. Two more, servanthood rather than entitlement. As we've always mentioned before, we become slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Like Jesus, we're servant kings, humbling ourselves, serving God's people, doing his will, and being about our Father's business. The last response I want to highlight kind of fits our emphasis on evangelism. Think of this, if I am absolutely secure in God, if my value to God is evident in the price He was willing to pay in His Son, Jesus Christ, if He has seen fit to lift me into the realm of royalty, if I know that I will rule and reign with Him someday, if I know I'm already seated with Him in the heavenly places, then what can man to me. Jim and I were having a conversation that man can imprison us, man can torture us, man can cut off our heads, he can kill the ones we love, and in light of our persecuted brothers and sisters who experience this every day in other parts of the world, I don't mean to minimize the terror and fear and Pain or presume that I would just skate through any of that. But let me say this nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. This boldness to proclaim is combined with our royal stature in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a what? Royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. My hope in this teaching is that we will think of that verse that we are a royal priesthood and that we are secure in Christ and that we have in his eyes been already brought into the realm of his royalty and therefore we can proclaim boldly the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want to end With one last verse. You may not feel like royalty these days, but it really doesn't matter how you feel. What matters is that we choose to believe God, that we believe all that he says we are. We are slaves of Christ, but we are also created for royalty. We believe that we are all he says we are, that we're royalty and we are destined for royalty, that because of what he has done, we have incredibly high value in standing in his eyes, and that he is able to make us stand. And so the last verse is Jude, verse 24. And let's stand as I, would you stand as I read this verse over us? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in His presence with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore, and together we will say Amen and amen. Hallelujah.